we give effort for a clapping effort right there? That's, I saw the effort that was there. <laughs> I, I noticed and I observed your effort. It was good. It was really good. Well, um, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, today we are closing out our series, uh, You Asked For It. <clears throat> uh, this has been a, a good series, and I'm really excited about next week. Next week, we are kicking off through the month of October. We are going to be going through the life of David. And, uh, and we're going to have some guest speakers that are going to be with us. It's going to be a really, really awesome series as we go through the life of David. But uh, just so you know, for today's message, for those that have uh, younger ears with them, uh, it, the subject matter is going to be of a more mature content. Um, there's, it's not going to be explicit or contain lewd jokes or anything like that. But I do want to, you to know that I'm going to be acknowledging the existence of God-designed intimacy and uh, we're going to be talking about some of these questions that have, that have come up. So I just want you to be aware of that, okay? Um, so in the meantime, as you know, I've pr- brought my own questions. This has been a series where you have written your own questions down and we have tackled them in the series. And I want you to know that I have continued to write down my own quandaries that I've been dealing with. And I hope you can help me answer some of them someday. Uh, first of all, why is it that grape nuts contains neither grapes nor nuts? Um, where did they get that name? Where in the nursery rhyme does it say that Humpty Dumpty was an egg? Whatever happened to Old Zealand? Why do you need to give your two cents if it only costs a penny for your thoughts? And finally, I gave you extra today because it is the last one of the, of the series. When French people swear, do they say, pardon my English? I don't know. So, uh, so the question we are answering today is, what is the biblical view of sexuality and identity? What's the biblical view of sexuality and identity? And some of you might say, uh, Pastor Brent, this is church. We aren't supposed to talk about sex in church. Um, then if, if you say that, I would just caution you, don't read too far beyond Ecclesiastes in your Bible. It gets pretty <laughs> crazy, okay? Um, let me tell you, sex is a difficult and complex topic. Uh, there would be many in this room and perhaps watching online uh, now or later that have suffered from sexual abuse and trauma, uh, adultery, addictions, unwanted attractions. And so this is a very complex topic. And so when I say I'm not going to make light or lewd comments, I, I mean it. This is a, um, this is a very difficult uh, conversation. And for that reason, um, the conversation about sexuality and gender in the church overall, the church doesn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, in many ways, the church is actually the only people not talking about it. <laughs> If you look outside these walls, lots of people are very comfortable talking about it. But when we get to church, we're like, that's the no-no topic. And uh, it's interesting. I asked Gavin permission to share this. Uh, this couple weeks ago in school, he'd only been in school less than a week. He's never been to this school before in his life, just meeting people. And this person he had known for less than like a few hours asked him. So he heard he was a Christian. He goes, what's the deal with Christians and not letting you have sex before marriage? And so like almost perfect strangers asking pretty big questions. And wanting to know answers about sexuality. And so, um, 
so, so these subjects are incredibly consequential, both socially and emotionally and relationally. Um, and so in addressing things um, like same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, uh, the, the church, I'm going to be honest with you, the best response we've really seen, and I don't think it's a good response, but a lot of the response we've seen is really just snarky memes that we see online that are angry and hateful towards people that are transitioning and going through things that are, are, we know aren't godly, but just it's, it's just hate, hate speech coming from the church. And so there's so much at stake that we're talking about here. The Christian response needs to, needs to uh, not be either putting our head in the sand or lashing out and hate or making, or the other side of things, making moral compromises. And so um, in doing one of these three things, Either one of those things, lashing out in hate, uh, putting our head in the sand, or, or making moral compromises, we're failing a generation. You might say, how are we failing a generation? Well, I'll tell you this. You probably would not be surprised to find out that 84% of religiously unaffiliated people would say that, that they think having casual sex is an acceptable thing. But today, more than half, if you were to uh, ask Christians, more than half of Christians, 56% of Christians say casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. And so we see this pervasive move through the church then, that, that this compromise on, on sexuality and things like that. And let me tell you, sexuality is being taught in our culture across so many modalities. And because sexuality is so tied into our humanity, the Bible actually makes a very high priority of it. The Bible doesn't skim over it, doesn't skip over it. It's talked about a lot. Jesus talks about sexuality and marriage and all these things heavily. Paul gave direct instructions to the church in his epistles about it. Song of Solomon, which I referenced earlier, by the way, if you didn't know, uh, is a celebration of the beauty of intimacy between two lovers. And this model was laid out from the very beginning of creation. You see, we live in a, in a meta-narrative uh, right now uh, where, whether you're aware or not aware of it, we are living in an inherited story as a follower of Jesus. Um, we, are, we are not writing our own personal spirituality. We live within a greater story that's going on. And this story goes all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. Uh, from the very beginning, God created in his image both male and females, and, and, and he created them with purpose. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. So we are less than a chapter into the Bible. God's created the heavens and the earth and the animals, and uh, I don't believe he created spiders. I believe that came after the fall. And... Uh, <laughs> He creates all these things, and then in verse 27, it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So, does it say, in the image of God, he created Adam? No. Does it say, in the image of God, he created Eve? No, it says, he created them. He created them. These two clearly defined genders were created by God and both of them in their distinctness, in their uniqueness, carry the reflection of God's image and character. Sometimes because we see the pronoun of he throughout the Bible about God, we, we assume that when Adam and Eve were created in God's image, they kind of, you know, it's mostly Adam carrying God's image, you know. Eve is, is, is kind of the girl version of it, but no, it says that they together were created in God's image. The identity of their distinctiveness, and in many ways, their counterpoints to each other. How many would say there are definitely counterpoints between he and she? 
um, in their counterpoints to one another, they complement and complete the image of God. Do you hear me, church? They complete the image of God. This was not an accident. God didn't just happen to do this. But it directly, uh, directly following this, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Look at verse 28, very next verse. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Now, when God said to be fruitful and multiply, he wasn't saying, I want you to plant an orchard and do some math. Okay, that's not what fruitful and multiply means. He says, in your distinctness and identity, I've designed you to come together in intimacy to produce offspring, but also to experience the life that happens within union together. There's a fruitfulness of life together in that union. So God does this all intentionally and purposefully. And what's Adam's response when he saw Eve? Chapter 2, verse 23. This is what Adam says when he sees Eve for the first time. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called, whoa, man, because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. So God's design was that of a one-to-one relationship of intimacy without shame. Intimacy without shame. You see, intimacy requires vulnerability. Their nakedness was vulnerability, but there was no shame. And in verse 24, it says that Adam joined his wife. The word here is devak, which means to cleave or to cling. It means literally to adhese together. And so Adam and Eve's in their nakedness, they felt no, sh- no shame. And so sexual intimacy is this glue that fuses the relationship that Genesis is talking about here. The intimacy of their nakedness in the time in the garden was actually the glue that fused their relationship together. Now, I want to make sure it's very clear. I, I'm sure it is already, but I'm not going to mince any words. Sex, as God has de- revealed in Scripture, and as Jesus has defined it to be, is between a man and a woman securely and consensually celebrated within the covenant of marriage. That is what this relationship is to be. You see, there are invisible effects of sex that God intentionally designed, but there's also something invisible that occurs emotionally, physiologically, and spiritually between two people when they're intimate. And God was brilliant in his design for sex being the capstone of commitment of two people who are living in a covenantial unity. God knew what he was doing here. Again, was not an accident. Um, you see, scientifically, there are chemicals engaged in our brains. I, I learned this this week. This is not something I just, information I walk around knowing, but I learned this as I researched. For women, there's a hormone that's primarily released for them called oxytocin. And for men, it's vasopressin. And oxytocin allows a woman to bond to the most significant people in her life. Um, and it eases stress and it creates feelings of calm and closeness, which leads to increased trust. It also causes her to want to nurture, protect the one she's bonded to. So when there's intimacy, this, this oxytocin is released within the woman. And it causes this easing of stress, this closeness, a new bond of trust that's beyond just a decision that's made. But it's an actual chemical released within her that's bonding her to that person. Vasopressin is similar to oxytocin, except that it's primarily released in the brain of a man. See, this hormone causes a man to bond to a woman during intimate contact. Some call it the commitment hormone. 
uh, or the monogamy molecule. Uh, This hormone generates desire for commitment and it rouses loyalty. It inspires a protective sense over one's mate and it can create a jealous tendency. So when this fusing of people comes together and these chemicals are released within their bodies very physiologically, God is intentionally doing this. When you have come together and on all other levels of commitment together as a family and you say we are bonding together under the, under the covering of, of commitment of marriage, it fuses them together. Like I just put these two pieces of tape together and it's intended to do that because it's very, very hard to separate. You cannot easily pull these two things apart. It, they, are, they are fused together. And so God did this on purposely because these chemicals are tremendously valuable and helpful. helpful. How many of you know that life is not just easy going then once you're married? You're like, married, I guess things are easy going. There's never going to be an issue we're going to deal with together. There are times where you're like, I'm going to lose my mind. But there's a commitment, there's a fusion that comes together in this relationship that says, I am committed to you completely. And, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and even down to our physiological uh, bodies, we are motivated to love, protect, and bond at an incredibly deep level. So that's why when, when intimacy is torn apart, it's incredibly destructive. You've seen as I've been trying to tear these two pieces of tape apart, it becomes destructive, the tape. They, they come apart in pieces. Because we fuse ourselves together on a much deeper deeper level than just skin-to-skin contact. There's much more going on. And so so when these things come together, that's when uh, when God intentionally brings these things together. So what happens then when we have multiple sexual partners? I've used this illustration when I was a youth pastor. When we have multiple sexual partners, we have this, this, this chemical bond, this fusion that we're supposed to have, this cleaving desire that's hardwired within us and we we fuse ourselves to someone and then and then we fuse ourselves to someone else and then we fuse ourselves to someone else and this bond we break and then we bond and then we break and you notice the more easily it becomes to bond and break and before you know it that adhesion is not nearly what it used to be because we've bonded and broke so many times that the depth of that fusing is far less sticky and so uh, when people utilize things, this, this goes beyond just, just physically between two people in those moments, but when people utilize things like pornography or a quick hookup like dating apps that are intended not for finding a soulmate, but for, for a, a quick encounter, maybe an encounter at a bar or a club or prostitution to meet their sexual desires, what it's doing is it's creating shortcuts to intimacy. And the trust and the investment that relationships require. And it only leads to human pain. Now, am I saying that there's not pleasure found in those things? Absolutely not. I would be, I would be uh, remiss and, and very uh, ignorant if I were to say that the, the pleasure can't be found in those things. But Hebrews 11.25 tells us that the pleasures of sin are fleeting. And that there's repercussions far beyond what we have in that moment. So... Consider, when we see sex being used outside the boundaries of covenant marriage relationship, what do we see? What do you see when you see intercourse and sex being used outside of those things? When you see it in in the pornography industry, when you see it in prostitution, when you see it in quick hookups. What I've noticed is there's exploitation, there's brokenness, there's pain, there's sickness, there's poverty, there's addiction. Those are the things we see when sex is misused. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 2 through 4, Paul says this. 
But because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Now, I I will say through history and in other um, religious movements and things, people excuse things like polygamy. They're like, well, it's in the Bible. We should allow it. Let me tell you, the Bible is full of people living very real lives that are very broken. Not just because the, uh, the patriarchs had multiple wives does not mean that God ordained that, okay? They are, they are flawed people. And so here's what Paul lays out. He says, for one man there should be one wife, and for one woman there needs to be one husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. So... Sex in our world is seen and portrayed as how we can receive gratification, how we can receive fulfillment and pleasure. But Paul challenges that approach and he teaches that in sexual intimacy, a husband and wife should actually be serving one another. That it's actually serving one another. Look at what, what Paul writes then in the preceding chapter though. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives this list. And so Paul calls the church to, if they're to be married, they're to be in a monogamous relationship, committed to one husband, one wife. And then he lists out this, in the prior chapter, this this list of things that separate us from God. Let me tell you, um, 20 years ago, about 3% of the population would identify as lesbian, gay, or transgender. Current statistics show that among Gen Z, 35% within, identify within the LGBTQ community. That's a number that's grown by over 4,000% in the last 10 years alone. In many ways, I'll tell you that it would be a lot easier to just affirm each lifestyle and avoid being called a bigot or hateful. I, I, I've, I've been fearful of that. Of people saying, you're a hateful person because you're calling this lifestyle sin. And in in many ways, it would be so much easier. But the truth is, I cannot restructure or reinterpret Scripture to make it more palatable to our culture. And so what God designs, we don't have the liberty to redefine around our own desires. We don't have the liberty to redefine those things. And so from Genesis 19 to Leviticus 18.22 to Romans 1.26-27 to 1 Timothy 1.10, Scripture is clear about homosexuality being a sin. And so I'm not just saying there's just a single verse there in the Bible and, and that's just kind of a problem, but maybe we misinterpret it throughout Scripture. It's very clear about this being an ungodly lifestyle. Now that being said, I do want to say this. Homosexuality has really become a pinnacle of sexual sin matter in the church. If we look back at this list Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he includes any who are living sexually immoral lives, people who have committed adultery, to which, by the way, Jesus includes anyone who even looks at a woman with lust, thieves, greedy people, and drunkards. I don't see the church walking around judging drunkards and greedy people nearly as much. Am I saying that homosexuality thus isn't a sin? No, but we like to hierarchy our sin struggles. And, and usually we like to put the ones on top are the ones that we don't struggle with. But let me tell you, Paul is clear that extramarital and premarital relationships are in the same moral camp as anyone who's within the LGBTQ community. 
Pornography is just as much a sin as those things. Living a fraudulent intimacy that takes the creation of God and marginalizes a person down to nothing more than what a body has to offer. That's intimacy that costs nothing. And it cheapens the divine creation of God. You see, we live, church, through our identities. How we perceive ourselves, how others perceive ourselves, how others perceive us, we live through our identities. And for those who deal with things like same sex attraction or gender dysphoria, when we say that's sin, it's not just saying you have sin in your life, it is actually to them saying what you are is a sin. It's not just that you're, it's an affront to their very identity. You see, it's not just a struggle with a particular sin, it's a war over their very identity. For a lot of our sin struggles, we don't wrap our identity in our sin struggle. We don't say, I'm, I'm Brent, I'm a rageaholic. I just, I'm, I'm rage. I am rage. That's something I deal with. Is that, is that something we typically put identity into? But for them, that is, the, that is who they are. And so when you identify that sin, it's actually an attack on their, their personhood. And, and sexuality is profoundly tied to identity. And so we often hear the phrase, especially in the church, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I, I agree with the sentiment of that, but I, I, I think what we see a lot of in the church is the hate the sin part. We're really good at that. But how have we loved the sinner? That part I haven't seen so much, and I, I speak that to myself as well. According to Drew Berryessa, who was someone I got to see speak a few months ago, he's an evangelist who's come out of the LGBTQ lifestyle. For someone who has had one of these identities, it's not just, I hate what you do. What they hear is, I hate you. And if you're someone trying to come out of this background, where are you supposed to go if if the church who should be loving you doesn't even know what to do with you? And that's the struggle he dealt with. He knew he was living in Portland, that his lifestyle was wrong, it was sinful, and he needed something, but no church was able to answer his questions. No church actually brought him in and helped him walk through this because they didn't know what to do with him. And something Drew shared is that when you leave the LGBTQ community, you're leaving a very welcoming, inclusive community that covers you with all those you relate with. It's your, it's your full community. You're socializing with them. So many aspects of who you are and suddenly you're isolated from that and you trade that in for a church that meets maybe once or twice a week. And, and, and now you're going from a lot of relational investment to very little relation, relationship investment. And for many, not all brokenness is sexual. It's relational wounds that need to be healed in the context of right relationships. Are we available to be the right relationships for those people? See, our job is to love people as Jesus loves people. And let me tell you, Jesus loves that community. Jesus loves the LGBTQ community. And our job is to love them as Christ loves them. Your struggle may not be my struggle, but you have value. And I'm going to actually demonstrate it and carrying it, carrying it out and li- loving you in a very real way, in an actual tangible way. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to be your friend. Is that something that you are willing to take up? Or is it just words? It's to know and love Jesus and to live it out in our lives. Finally, as we talk about identity, I want to speak to singleness too. I, would, I just want to say, I hear, I hear some amens. Your struggle in singleness is not a struggle. The goal of being human is not marriage and procreation. It's to know and love Jesus. You see, if we say marriage is the goal, we're implicitly stating that you have not reached your full identity unless you find a spouse. And, and we're telling every unmarried person, you're just not there yet. 
And let me tell you that that's not, that's not the reflection of Scripture. I mean, Jesus wasn't married. If we say marriage is the goal, we're, we're telling people, uh, you're, 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 you're just not complete yet. Let me tell you, we are only complete in Christ. We are only complete in Christ. Hosanna, I love her with all of my heart, but did you know she doesn't complete me? Like that little, like that little sloth in Ice Age says, you complete me, you know? Marriage is not two partial people coming together so we can become whole. Paul was single and he was still fully expressed and complete without being married. I, I, so, so I want you to understand this. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 says, Paul says, I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. He's actually advocating it's better to be not married. Paul considered those who are single on the varsity team and those who are married are on the JV team. In verses 32 through 35, he says, when you don't have the concerns and responsibilities of marriage, all the other things that come with it, and let me tell you that if you are married, you are committed to those. You should follow through on those. But if you don't have those, you can take those, that time and ability to focus those interests undivided and fully serve God. Now, you may be in this room and say, I've just known I'm called to a life of being single, and I know that's my calling. We've got missionaries that we support around the world that have actually said, I'm engaging with my life as a, as a fully committed, just follower of Jesus. I don't think I'm called to be married. Or maybe you're saying, I'm still searching for your spouse. I'm believing and praying for the right person. Let me tell you, whichever camp you're in, you are still full and complete in Jesus. You are full and complete in Him. So, with all that said, why does God create so many rules about sexuality, expression, and relationship? Why doesn't he just let us be and work things out and, and be who we should be, feel like we should be? Well, Jordan recently shared an illustration on his social media that really struck a chord with me, and this isn't meant to be a pun because I've got my guitar here. Um, I've used this illustration before in terms of, of sports, but I really liked how it worked within music. If I were to take my guitar and uh, let's see here, here we go. And feel like, I just want to play it like this. Or, or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, I just. And, and I want to, thank you, thank you. If I was to play it like that, I have the choice to do it, right? I have the ability to do that. But what I play, what I, if I play whatever I desire, whatever I feel like playing, it's incongruous, right? But in music, there are chord structures that are put together. There are scales that have been designed. And in playing within those, when I play within those, it actually provides for us the freedom and the space to create beauty and individuality and expression and so when we say, God, why are you putting these limitations? Why can't I just do what I want within my life? God says, I've created structure and I've created a, a, a space for you to express yourself and to have individual, individuality and, and, and beauty. But when we push against those limitations God's designed in the name of freedom, it's actually just leading to chaos. And sometimes we think, but I want what's best for me. I want to express myself in different ways. And we step into the world of chaos. Because we're trying to design it around what we would want to hear. So my question is, what if God's limitations are actually, in reality, good for us? What if God's parameters he's created is to protect us? 
to bring together in health what we should have in proper relationship and proper vulnerability in marriage and in intimacy. What if those limitations are good for us? I, I was listening to, we listened to a stories in the car with the kids called Adventures in Odyssey. And uh, in one of the stories, they talked about a little boy who got a new puppy. And he, his parents told him, you can have this puppy and take it on walks, but you must keep it on its leash. And, and he, he put the puppy on its leash, but he found that he kept getting tangled in the leash. And the puppy would want to go places so bad, and he would strain at the leash. And he's always having to pull on it. And he thought, this will be so much easier if I just take it off the leash. Then the puppy can experience freedom. And so finally, one day, he did it. He took the puppy off the leash, and that puppy ran right into the street. And it was a tragic story we listened to. We were like, that's sad. But let me tell you. Sometimes we feel like those perimeters, those, those parameters that God puts on us, the, the, the limitations are, 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 are holding us back, but it's actually for our protection, for our health, and for our freedom, ultimately. And so are you living and operating within that? Some of, this, some of us in this room, we talk about our identity. We're talking about whether that be sexual identity, or maybe it be that your identity has been wrapped around the affirmations you receive from people for your looks or your sexuality. And uh, maybe it's been in your achievements or your education or your profession or your athletics or your creativity. And, and anytime you've come up short in any of those areas, you feel empty of your self-worth. Your identity has been wrapped in the wrong thing, and it's come up short. And this morning, you need a an identity transfer. Maybe you've had your innocence stolen from you. Statistically, it would be a huge percentage of people in this room that without their choice, you've had something taken from you by pure evil. God sees you today. He wants to heal you. He wants to make you new. Maybe you've made self-destructive choices yourself. He restores and he makes all things new. He makes all things new. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live, this earth, so I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying that my old self has been crucified, it's dead, but I've been brought to new life in Jesus and now he lives through me, it's expressed through me. And let me tell you what he says here is important because how we live in this earthly body does matter. He says, I, I, I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God. So let me tell you, you can be made new today. But you need to trust in Jesus and say, everything I do, the choices that I make from this point forward, do I honor Christ with my body? Do I honor him in everything I do? Because what we do in this earthly body does matter. But there's healing this morning. If you've been broken, if you've been hurt, if you've been feeling unworthy, there's an identity transfer that's available. And we switch our identity to that of Jesus. And his righteousness covers us. His righteousness makes us whole. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment this morning. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. This is a very personal thing. But maybe you're in this room and you have dealt with sexual brokenness. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's an unwanted attraction. Maybe things have been brought upon you that you did not choose that are outside of your power, or maybe you've made choices that have been destructive. 
today you say, I need to just yield it to Jesus and take on the new identity of Christ. Wrap myself in his righteousness. It's, it's I am made new in him. And the way I live my life out from this day forward in this body honors him in everything I do. So right now, if that's you, I want to pray with you. Jesus, I pray with this church. You came for the broken. You came for the flawed. You came for those who've experienced deep wounds. And Lord, I pray that you would make the broken whole. That you would restore broken hearts. That you would re-cleave those who are married and have been at a point where they feel their relationship as at a breaking point. Lord, I pray for healing in Jesus' name. For trust to be reborn and restored. Lord, I pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit for those who have been lost down a, a line of pornography and, and, and addiction to sexual things, Lord. I pray that there would be a conviction of the Holy Spirit that it wouldn't just be feeling bad about it, but Lord, that it would be a life-changing, altering moment where they come to salvation saying, I need to surrender every moment of my life to Christ. Every portion of my life, my thought life, belongs to Him. Beyond just a statement of faith, I surrender every portion of my being to Him. So right now, Lord, we pray for victory in Jesus' name. We thank You for it, Father. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, there's one, one final thing that just I want to touch on. If, we, if you've done your connection cards already, um, if you have prayer or praise to write on that, please let us know. You can fill out a second one. It doesn't bother us to fill out a second one, especially if you do digital ones. We don't even, it doesn't cost us any ink. It's free. Um, but I felt like the Holy Spirit to speak to me. If you deal with an addiction to pornography, if it's a struggle for you, we are not meant to fight alone. And I want to help you in this fight. There are accountability means and apps that are available that, uh, that are out there that, that can help. And it, when I say accountable, sometimes you feel like someone's going to be watching over my shoulder to see me fail and jump out and be like, gotcha. But it's someone who says, I've got your back. I'm praying for you and agreeing for you and I'm going to see you succeed. It's not saying someone saying, I'm going to watch for you to fail, but I'm going to help you succeed in this. So there's different things like Covenant Eyes and different programs and apps that can help you on your phone, on your computer, things like that. I want to see, I'm going to speak specifically to men. I want to see men be victorious in this church over this. I don't want to see addiction tear apart families, tear apart lives, tear apart intimacy and trust in this church. And so let me tell you, if you want that on your connection card, or you can come talk to me privately. If you prefer, I don't want to fill out a connection card, that's fine. Come talk to me. I'll get you your, your contact information and we'll put together something so that we can help support you through walking through victory over pornography. Okay? I, I, I know that's a weird way to close the service, but I felt like the Lord just speak to me. I don't want you to miss this, guys. Or ladies. Let me tell you, guys are not the only ones that struggle with their, with their vision. Um, so, ladies, if, if that's you, um, come talk to Hosanna. We would love to pray with you, but also to support you in this, all right? Let me pray over us, church, as we go this morning. Lord.
We thank you that you gave us the gift of intimacy. You created this as a gift. And so we don't, we, we grapple with it because it's complicated and it's complex, but also we celebrate that you have created us for such close relationships. We are meant to cleave to one another. We are meant to love one another and honor one another and serve one another. So again, I pray for relationships in this room. I pray for marriages in this room, that they would be uh, resolved, that there would be a stealing of the relationship, that they would draw together and cleave as, as they never have before. I pray for dating relationships in this, in this church, Lord. I pray that they would be kept holy and set apart and, 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 and distinct for what you have called them to be for the right time and the right place, that they would put Jesus things above all other things. And Lord, I pray for those who are walking through seasons of, of singleness or whatever else it might be, Lord. I pray pray that they would be uh, fully aware of just how complete they are in Jesus, that you have made them unique and fully uh, autonomously themselves in Christ. And they don't need something else to complete themselves. They are fully human and fully loved and fully given purpose in Jesus name. And we thank you, God, for the calling that is for this church. I pray that we would bring, be life bringers and life givers to all we encounter this week. No matter their background, no matter their story, that we would love others as Christ. We know you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. New Life Church, go with God today. Be blessed. And we will see you in life groups through this week. God bless you.